We are now entering the third week in Advent, and we have begun the year of mercy. I am very excited about this year of mercy because we can do stuff that has to do with mercy. It's like the year of faith. There were all kinds of things that we could do to learn about and grow in faith. The same can't quite be said about the year of St. Paul or the year for consecrated life. Not that those were not good years, but not quite the same for organizing weekly activities. But mercy, mercy is something that we can practice and we need to practice. And before you start, there are two things you need to know about mercy. Mercy is not compassion or pity. You can have compassion for someone who is suffering, and we should. Compassion means to suffer with. But for someone to deserve mercy, they have to actually have done something wrong. They have to have trespassed or they owe a debt that has to be paid. So in order to receive mercy, you have to be guilty. Second, the only person that can offer that guilty person mercy is the one against whom the offense was committed and has the authority to offer justice. I cannot offer mercy to someone who has not offended me or trespassed against me. I can only offer mercy to someone who owes me something and giving them mercy means that I am forgiving that debt. So, they have to be guilty and they have to have offended me in order for me to be able to offer them mercy. So, who are the people in your life who owe you something and who you are unwilling to let go? Maybe that's a good place to begin this year of mercy. I'm Deacon Pedro, and this is the Salt and Light Hour. Hello and welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Today we continue with our usual show format. Emily Callan will be here with our news. And afterwards, Jillian Cantor is back to tell us what she learned from her kids this month. After that, on Connect 5, Sebastian Gomes speaks with Tony Spence of Catholic News Service, who looks at political polarization in the church and the growing trend of Catholic news in the secular press. In our second half hour, we're happy to speak with a talented and young author, Denise Mallet, who's written an epic novel, her first. It's called The Tree, and it's a page-turner. I've been looking forward to speaking with Denise now for a while, and so we're very happy to welcome her to the show today. That's in about half an hour. And after that, we'll be speaking with another talented and young artist. He's a singer, Lupe Rios. He has a beautiful new Advent and Christmas album, and so that's where we begin. Here's Lupe Rios with Saved de una Virgen from his Songs of Advent and Christmas album. Saber que una Virgen concebirá dará a luz a un niño Saber que una virgen concebirá, dará a luz a un niño y 
That was Lupe Rios with Saved de una Virgen from his Songs of Advent and Christmas album. Saved de una Virgen means to know about a virgin. Very nice song. We're going to be speaking with Lupe Rios in our second half hour. And in 10 minutes, what I learned from my kids with Jillian Cantor. But first, Emily is in Quebec City <laughs> for the opening of a holy door. Emily, yes. thank you for joining us. So tell us about uh, this. What, why, why are we opening doors everywhere? Why are we opening doors? You know, I've kind of asked myself the qu same question, too. Um, it's something that is, is a little hard to understand, a little mysterious. Yeah. Um, why, why these doors? Well, opening, um, opening doors um, is, is actually a, a very um, uh, strong, strong symbol during mm -hmm. a Jubilee year. Uh -huh. um, so basically, it's an opportunity um, for people um, to say, to say, to explain it very basically. It's an opportunity for people um, to, um, to basically uh, live a spiritual, to start a spiritual a journey to live some kind of conversion. It's a it's a, a way of expressing their desire um, to let Christ into their life, right? Um, and to also um, and to also live live that out in in their life. Absolutely. Um, now, sorry, just to, yeah. to interrupt, just in case any of our listeners are you know they haven't been paying attention. So th there's a jubilee year that is starting. Can you just remind yes. us what's happening? Yes, exactly. So the Jubilee Year of Mercy, um, okay. which Pope Francis um, announced would be opening in December, so uh -huh. this December, he announced this last year in March uh, during Lent. Yes. Um, and so um, and so, this has been uh, a very short preparation time for a Jubilee Year, and it's actually an extraordinary Jubilee Year, because yes. normally it happens at... Uh, 
every every 25 or 50 years um but right now um it's it's not following that kind of timeline so so very short preparation for this for this jubilee year um but a very important one because pope francis what he what he was what he says about this year is that mercy is something the world deeply deeply needs at this moment mm-hmm. um and and it's something for example after um the terrorist attacks in paris was uh, reiterated that you know these these this these wars are happening there's violence there's a lot of there's just bad stuff yeah um so mercy, he's saying basically mercy is an, is an answer to this. And uh-huh. um, talking to people, you know, how, how I'm asking them, how is mercy an answer to this? You know, how can something that, that we don't necessarily um, see maybe or we talk about, we don't really understand what it means. And we've kind of also put mercy on the back burner thinking is just some kind of fluffy word. Um, but really what it is is a, um, is is that mercy is, is is the answer because it calls on to be um, forgiving towards people mm-hmm. to seek um, reconciliation um, and, um, and 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 to to move forward from from whatever situations are maybe holding us back from really being being free and being uh, loving. Yeah, yeah. So, um, um, so, so this is kind of what's happening right now. <laughs> yeah, no, I I was gonna you just I don't know you know I was in Auschwitz in in July. And uh, at the same time, I learned that at the same time that this whole Auschwitz and Second World War thing was happening, Sister Faustina in Krakow, in Poland, was also having getting this message of divine mercy. And when Pope right. John Paul II was asked, St. Pope John Paul II was asked, you know, how do we respond to something as horrible as Auschwitz? He said, the, the response is divine mercy. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and Pope Francis is reminding me about this uh, as well with, with what he's saying. So December 8th, yeah. we, we began the year of mercy, but it's also a jubilee year. Pope Francis actually opened the door. I think last time we saw a door opened was Pope John Paul II for 2015 years ago. Um, yeah. So, so, exactly. so what happened on Tuesday then? Yeah, so, um, so in Rome, uh, there was the St. Peter's Basilica, who, who has a holy door, yeah, uh, this yeah. massive, massive door yes. um, that that the Pope opened. And it's only going to, it's, it's the first, really. Well, the first, um, I mean, he, he opened one in uh, in Bangui when he was in Central Africa in anticipation for this year. Yes. But this one is really the first one that's going to be open, that, yes. that was opened. Yes. And then other ones are, are now are now following, following suit. Um, so... So there was actually a very a very special moment when he first opened the door. It actually took him a few times before he was able to go through. Um, <laughs> so you kind of see like there's you know it almost feels like there was just so much so much power going into this. You know how yes. how how big this moment was. Yes. And so the Pope Pope Francis went through the door, um, cro- crossed the threshold, and then um, and then right after him came uh, Pope. Benedict the Sixteenth. Yes. Um, you know, and he he comes and walking very slowly into the cathedral, and and they greet each other, and it was just a very a very sweet moment mm-hmm. between um, between these two pontiffs. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, so this is this is just the beginning, uh, or that was just the beginning, um, and uh, uh, and now here in Quebec yes. tonight, yes, um, we okay. will be opening reopening another holy. Door. Okay, so hold on a second. So so the the. Pope Francis opened the door in St. Peter's. You said that there was a door opened in in Bangui in in uh, 
uh, Uganda, was it Uganda or Central African Central Republic? Africa. Central African Republic. And then there are doors that are being opened in many basilicas and, and, and cathedrals all over the world, correct? And you're at one of them correct. in Quebec City. So tell us yes, about Quebec exactly. City. exactly. So this is also something that is unique about this Jubilee year for Mercy. Usually, we um, pilgrims are, are asked to come to Rome to cross a holy door yes. um, to receive special graces, um, indulgences. And this is all kind of part of the, yes. the ritual, if you say, or the experience yes. of living a ju- Jubilee year. Yes. Um, but the Pope um, wanted to extend this to the rest of the world and make right. it accessible to others. And so, um, all the holy doors, or there, all the holy. I mean, there's there's one outside of Rome, which is the one in the, yes in Quebec City here. But he wanted to make sure that that each diocese had holy doors or doors of mercy, which we're also calling them. Okay, so and so yeah, yeah, so there are specific parishes that bishops in each diocese chose yes. um, to have to have these these doors. So everyone, um, everybody should have a, a holy door near them that they can they can go to. Exactly. Um, where is yeah. the one in Quebec City? Which uh, is it? Uh, Notre Dame. Which facility? At Notre Dame. Yeah, the Notre Dame of Quebec uh, Cathedral. Yes. And um, yeah, so which which was first built? I mean, we we opened it for its the dice the jubilee year of the dice oh, yes. 375th anniversary and we closed it last year but now we're now you're we're getting to open it, it. Again. so this is actually quite a gift That's to the great. diocese that it so is. soon after it was closed we get to to open it again. It is very cool, and you're going to be there tonight, so that's good, and, and people can watch uh, that on Salt and Light Television if they're interested in watching the opening of uh, the Holy Door in uh, Notre Dame in Quebec City. Um, yes. And we're, I'm sure we're going to be doing lots of stuff with doors and mercy and all kinds of stuff, <laughs> Jubilee, yes. this year. So thank you, Emily. Enjoy Quebec City, beautiful little little town of Quebec yes, City. Yes, I don't know if I'm coming back. <laughs> Please come back. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot, okay, Pedro. Okay, merci. You can watch Emily, Calan, and all our Perspectives team in English, French, Italian, and Chinese and get the latest updates on Perspectives Daily on Salt and Light TV, online at saltandlighttv.org, and also on our Roku channel. Hey, I'm Tori Harris, and you're listening to the Salt and Light Hour with Deacon Pedro. I'm Deacon Pedro. You can find me on Facebook. Just look for Deacon Pedro and you can follow me on Twitter at Deacon Pedro GM. And that's how you can find out what is happening in the Salt and Light Hour. And now it's time for What I Learned from My Kids with Jillian Cantor. Jillian, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. How are you? I am very good. Thank you. And you, you've learned something new from your children this month? All the time. Tell us. Okay, so uh, most recently I've learned from my children that it is all about perspective. (laughs) Yes. Um, They're giving me um, some insight into their perspective and allowing me to have perhaps a more positive perspective. Um, And how this has all happened is that uh, I, uh, my oldest son Joseph is in grade two this year, Mm -hmm. and so he is preparing, um, he's just recently had his first reconciliation, and he's preparing for his first communion. And so as he was preparing, I found myself and David also doing a little of preparing and thinking that there are probably parents who are in the same boat who might be um, trying to remember their own catechism or their kids are asking them questions. And maybe there are some parents who don't know how to answer those questions. So I approached my parish priest and asked if I could lead a faith study um, for grade two parents that would 
be a refresher course, basically, um, on the importance and the significance and uh, behind reconciliation and um, Holy Communion. Yes. And so um, he agreed. He had no problem with it, and off he sent me on my way to organize this and and hopefully recruit some people to join. And yes. so over the course of a month, um, it was very slow <laughs> response to uh-huh. the to the invitation. Now there's potentially over a hundred parents that could join this faith yes. study. And while I never expected that high of a number, I was a little disappointed that it was only three <laughs> people. Yes. And so I was talking about this with David and Joseph overheard and he asked what we were talking about and so I explained what I was doing, this faith study, and I said, and so only three parents have signed up. And his eyes widened and he said, that's great! With you, there's four! Aww. And so I, <laughs> I said, that's right, there are four. And I, in that moment, I, my, my priest had been saying the same thing, don't worry about the numbers. Yes. It doesn't matter how many people show up, it just matters that some people do and that, you know, these are people who are seeking something and so hopefully mm-hmm. this is good for them. And so, but it took my son saying it to me for it to finally hit me because just of his genuine enthusiasm that four whole people would sign up. So, so yes, yeah, so I have now taken that um, more positive approach uh, that, yeah, it's all about the perspective. You know, mm-hmm. it's only four out of potentially a hundred, but, but we'll embrace that and, and hopefully have a really good group with these four people and hopefully make a little bit of difference in there as they help their children prepare for First Communion. Absolutely. So, but on the other hand, yes. I also know that the perspective of children can be um, quite the opposite. Uh-huh. In fact, if you yes. ask them to finish their mashed potatoes or drink their milk, it can lead to 20 minutes of lying on the floor and circling around on the floor, crying and whining, because why would I ask them to do such a terrible thing? <laughs> So in that case, I also need to remember it's all about perspective, because given my personality and temper, I have the tendency to um, let my reaction match their level of irrationality in their response to certain things. Um, And so I have to keep reminding myself in that situation, too, it's all about perspective, you know, they're flipping out because they don't want to finish their milk, but that doesn't mean that I need to flip out in response. Yes. That I am the mom and I should be in more control and I can keep that perspective, keep that focus, um, and then and just and offer some more peace to our family just in the way that I respond. So it's all about perspective. It's, it's all about being positive. It's all about being rational. Yes. <laughs> it's all about just creating that um, level of optimism and peace. It's all about perspective. Maybe you need to make sure that the parents know that you're giving them milk and mashed potatoes and more <laughs> parents will come to your faith education. Really? I don't know if that's the drawing card. <laughs> you don't I think so? an hour of quiet time might uh, yes, be the without thing that kids. brings them forward. But. Well, you know what? It's all about perspective with your four parents. Maybe other parents are listening to this right now and they're going to be inspired because they've been wanting to do this, but they're scared because it's going to be a lot of work or because a hundred parents are going to show up. Don't, don't be scared because maybe only four parents will show up. Yeah, don't worry. Um, don't worry. Sign up. Um, Just, you can handle that. <laughs> yes, this is, this is good. And, and as you know, some priests are actually forcing parents to go and do the course <laughs> while the kids are doing their prep. So there you go. 
could be worse. It's all about perspective. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, good. Thank you very much. Um, and and I every time I drink milk and mashed potatoes, I'm going to think of you and, and your kids. Okay, thank you very much. Jillian Cantor is the producer of the Salt and Light TV program Mothering Full of Grace, and she's the wife of David and the mother of Joseph, Henry, Annie, Clara, and baby number five. Hey there, this is Tony Melendez. You're listening to the Salt and Light Hour with Deacon Pedro. God bless you. How are you going to spend the next five minutes of your time? How about listening in, meeting a fascinating person, and learning something relevant that will broaden your perspective? Sit down with Sebastian Gomes and go straight to the heart of the matter. Here's Connect 5. Today, Sebastian speaks with Tony Spence of Catholic News Service. Tony Spence, thanks for sitting down with us. One of the realities of the church in North America, and perhaps it's more pronounced in the United States than Canada, but I think it, it is also the case in Canada, is um, there's some polarization that has infiltrated the Catholic Church, um, and we find different opinions about different things. And oftentimes, Pope Francis is the, the bedrock or the foundation or where the conversation starts. And then some people tend to go in different directions, but it's a fascinating thing. Certainly, uh, the United States society uh, is divided. Not uh, Secular society is very polarized now. And the church is, is, there are factions in the church that are very polarized that cannot be placated no matter what. So uh, I think Francis' change in tone uh, in the two years of his papacy from one under uh, St. John Paul II and uh, Pope Benedict that was more uh, emphasis, had more emphasis on doctrinal aspects of the church, uh, and that had its time. So, uh, and now Francis is saying, okay, we have these doctrines, but now let's concentrate on being pastors, uh, as bishops, as priests, as heads of families, as just people in the pew. And uh, let's look at it that way. We have the law, but the law lives in service of the people, not people in service of the law. Since Pope Francis has been elected, it's been fascinating that we see a growth within the secular media uh, with a sort of a presence. There's some kind of presence. They're putting resources and time and energy into covering not only Pope Francis, but the Catholic Church more broadly, because they, sort of, they see it as a significant player, maybe a relevant player in the world today. Um, can you comment on that? I mean, is this, is this a phenomenon that's isolated to Pope Francis the man, or do you see it in a sort of bigger picture, a bigger development is happening? I hope it's a bigger development that is happening, and it's about time. Uh, over the last 20 years, uh, religion, reporting on religion uh, had really faded. It became weak and was uh, very much a low priority for media in the United States and Canada. Uh, I think they uh, were every every daily newspaper and television station had somebody who would re cover religion robustly. They even had religion sections in the newspapers, and those have all but faded uh, over the years. Uh, and then it's in religion reporting falls to well, whoever's you know the slot guy on the on the desk, you know, no matter if they have any expertise or any depth of knowledge about it at all, you know, you certainly would not send, you know, a sports reporter to cover Wall Street, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but they'll let anybody cover religion, it seems. So, but there has been a movement, I think, Sebastian, uh, to, to put more investment 
in uh, religion reporting. Certainly Francis might have been the tipping point, but uh, I've seen a lot of investment uh, and a lot of renewed interest in religion reporting in the media. Here in the United States, the two best examples I think are the Boston Globe, which uh, had a new owner and that owner decided to uh, invest in a new standalone online uh, publication, Crux. And, and fascinating, a secular uh, media outlet in Boston, which is traditionally very Catholic, but has dealt with some of the most serious yeah. scandals of the Catholic Church as well. So there, there's a great resistance uh, you know, to the church as well there. So it's right. it, it is a great irony that that started in Boston. It is, you yeah. Know, where, uh, the second is uh, the Wall Street Journal. So part of Rupert Murdoch's uh, empire and the Wall Street Journal has realized that Francis is a bit of a game changer globally because he is addressing uh, global economic situations. He is addressing environment situations, which has enormous financial impact uh, on business, on the world, on how nations organize themselves. So they have uh, created a Vatican Bureau now just for the Wall Street Journal and have a person there covering uh, the Holy Father, just the Holy Father and issues around uh, the Holy See. Tony Spence, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Sebastian Gomes speaking with Tony Spence of Catholic News Service. You can watch this and more interviews at saltandlighttv.org slash connect5 and also on our Roku channel. Coming up in our second half hour, The Tree, an epic novel, and we meet singer-songwriter Lupe Rios. So don't go anywhere. Hello and welcome to the Salt and Light Hour Part 2. I'm Deacon Pedro. Now, this may not be for everyone, but if you like epic novels, Christian medieval fantasies, Lord of the Rings style, you will love Denise Mallet's debut novel, The Tree. Have a listen. With only two months to save his country, Josiah has been dealt an impossible hand. He must find a myth, if a myth can be found. Setting out into hostile wilderness, Josiah begins crossing into the wilds of his own soul and into a realm beyond reason. And that's only one part of the story because there's more. But to tell us, I'm now joined by Denise Mallet. Denise, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Hello. <laughs> so good to have you um, on the program finally. Um, um, there's so much I want to ask you, but maybe we should start with, if, if you can give, what's the two-minute summary of the tree? Well, if you can do it in two minutes, there's a lot. <laughs> I, I don't know if I could stretch it into two minutes. <laughs> okay. But um, basically, it's a um, it's like a spiritual adventure, kind of is how I like to put it. Okay. Um, you've got you know the one side of the story is those two men journeying into wilderness to find this myth that is right. supposed to save their country from civil war, and then on the other side of the coin, you have political intrigue and treachery from the past being unburied. So Right. Okay, um, you know, that's good, that's good. Maybe we should tell people more um, so <laughs> they can go buy the book. Um, the novel was inspired by a dream? Mm-hmm. Tell me yeah, about when that. I was about 13, I think it was, uh -huh. 
I had this dream that I was flying through mountains, and I spied this village below. So I went and landed in the village, and in an alcove in the wall surrounding the village, there was this tree planted there, and I saw a fruit hanging, so I went to pick one. And the moment that I picked one, this village, which had been until that moment completely deserted and silent, suddenly erupted with activity as all these villagers came streaming out, and they were angry. And so I realized I had done something wrong and dropped the fruit and flew up and away. Right. And so from the stream, I just it, it got the wheels turning, like, what yeah. was it that I had done wrong? I, it's in many ways um, linked to like the fall of mankind with the tree in the Garden of Eden. Right. It, this story is very different, but it kind of has the same flavor of temptation and that sort of thing. So. Yeah, and, and I think I, was, I wanted to ask you about that because, I mean, it has been described as Christian medieval fantasy, and I get that it's medieval, and I get that it's fantasy, but mm-hmm. what makes it Christian? Well, I wanted to bring our faith into the world without being um, too overt or cheesy. Uh So I've taken, um, like, familiar elements of our faith and given them different names and integrated them into the world. And um, it just, it's the driving force behind the story, the characters, you know, journeys, um, toward Adonai, God. Right. So. Right, so you've taken taken things of our faith and give like Adonai and given it not that that's such a different name for for God. Um and and there are other things like that. Is there also um symbolism that like the larger the journey stands for, you know, Josiah, Josiah and the and the his companion are going into the wilderness, but that's also symbol symbolic for as you said, as in the, the description, as I, as I just read in the description, that it's kind of going into our own soul. Mm-hmm. I think very much so. Yeah. In fact, in writing this story, like, not a lot of, not everything, I should say, is my intent. Um, uh, what am I trying to say here? Yeah. I, I guess the reader can take different things from the story that I didn't necessarily intend, mm-hmm. but I leave it open-ended. So the reader could be journeying into their own soul as much as yes. the various characters and kind of make it their own journey. Yeah. It certainly was a journey for me writing this book. Yeah, um, I would say one of the most intense spiritual journeys of my own life. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now we didn't. We've spoken about Josiah. That's one one of the main characters. And but you have a female character, Rihanna. I believe that's how you pronounce her name, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and she's again. I don't want to. I want to be careful not to give too much away. But she's very much. I guess she's very much the protagonist in the story. Um, how much of her is you? <laughs> I would say a lot. <laughs> yeah. I think that that's what made it um, easier to write her character. Is that yeah. very much understood her journey. Of the desert, that's I think at the heart of her journey is discovering beauty in the desert, purpose in the desert. That's been my spiritual journey, so I just translated that into a character. I I just find that when I experience something beautiful in life, I want to put it down into words. So to be able to take my personal journey and put that, you know, into a character was very special mm-hmm. for me. That's that's 
Adrian. And can I assume then, because you had, I mean, you said you had the dream when you were 13, what, like mm -hmm. 10 years ago, nine years ago? I don't know. Um, <laughs> how much of this was being written as you're going through those key years in your life? Um, and there's all kinds of other stuff happening in your life that is obviously your own experiences growing up adolescence is giving shape to the story? Well, it took about six years to write. <laughs> so yeah. it, it was a process of, like, developing the story as I was developing. Yeah. Um, between, like, the ages 13 and 17, um, I, didn't, I didn't really have the story down yet. And then when I was 17, I really felt the call that this was actually meant to be a book. Mm-hmm. So I kind of scrapped it and kept, you know, okay. the, the essentials like the tree. Yes, yeah. And then really began to write my story down. So from 17 to its publication, that's when a lot of mm -hmm. my, my uh, life story started coming out through the pages. Right, yeah. But I guess a lot of that was already in, in you. Um, just kind of brewing, maybe brewing is not the mm -hmm. right word, but uh, and learning to um, put what was inside me down, yes, in words. So learning what my style was, and yeah, developing that. Yeah. Now I, you come from a large family. Um, I, I actually know your dad and your mom, and, and and I've been to your house in Saskatchewan. Um, but how how much has growing up in that in that environment, and and you can tell us as much or as little as you want about your family and growing up, um, but how much has that has influenced? Do you think not just this story, but your writing in general? Um, a lot. <laughs> I had a very, very rich childhood um, for the experiences, but also for the spiritual formation. Yeah, my parents have done an amazing job in giving us a faith and a love for our faith. And also our lifestyle. Um, I see God easiest in beauty. That's, yeah. that's where I connect with him. And so growing up um, for a great part of my childhood on a farm, mm -hmm. there were so many opportunities to, to meet God and see metaphors in the world around me there. Yeah. So I, I don't know if I would have written this book if I had not had the childhood that, that I was given. Yeah. And it's interesting because, I mean, your, your dad's a musician, I, maybe I should say her. Your dad is Mark Mallet, um, uh, but you—that's not where you were being. I mean, I'm sure that that you guys all had a very musical upbringing and and going on tour with your dad and and your mom also sings and and uh, but that's not where you ended up. You know, you're not writing songs. You're writing novels. I have written a few songs actually <laughs> with my sisters. That yeah. that is that is a love of mine. Um, it's definitely on the side, but yeah. I've fallen more in, in the footsteps of my father regarding writing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's very cool. Um, I know that you're writing a sequel. I am writing a sequel. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit? I was working on it today. <laughs> oh, were you? Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. Um, it's the story that follows right on the heels of the tree and it involves twisty political intrigue and adventure as uh, the country, country of Relen is, is uh, seeking to claim the mountains before another country does. Right. So, Same pretty characters? excited about this. I was not planning on writing a sequel. I didn't 
want to write a sequel just because people wanted me to or because it would be smart, but I wanted to have an inspired story. Mm-hmm. And then one day, in one day, <laughs> the story just unfolded in my mind, and I started writing it, and it just was flowing from there. And yeah, it's kind of coming together in the same way that the tree was. So I'm just going with that, hoping that the Lord will carry me through to the end. Well, that's good. I hope it doesn't take you six years to write the sequel, though. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I learned a lot in writing the first one, so. No, it that's be great, <laughs> and it, and it's, it's such a blessing that you're able to to sit and write, actually, and and uh, that that seems that God has taken care of things for you, so that you're able to do that. Yeah, it's it's quite amazing. I know that if I'm faithful to my calling to write, that He's going to pave the way for me, and yeah. He is. Amen. Good. And, and hopefully uh, a lot of our listeners will be interested in knowing more. So one last question. Mm-hmm. What is your hope? People read this book. I read this book. What is your what is your hope that this book will do for readers other than just, you know, it's, it's entertaining and it's a good story? Um, what else? Well, I hope that readers will be able to find purpose in their own sufferings through what the characters learned, that they'll learn... Um, more about God and maybe even more about themselves. Mm-hmm. It's my hope that the characters are relatable. So it's the deepening of their faith because even if I'm not necessarily writing about God, I want everything that I write to lead people to God. Mm-hmm. So I I hope that's what the tree does for people and I hope that's what everything else I, I ever write does for people. Amen. Good. Well said. Okay, I'm looking forward to the sequel. <laughs> Absolutely. I want my own copy. Autograph. All right. I'll sign it. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Yes. Sign it again. Okay. Good. Thank you, Denise. Um, thank you for making a little time for us today in the middle of your writing. And, uh, and uh, Merry Christmas. Thank you. Happy, you too. Happy Advent and Merry Christmas. Me too. Denise Mallet is the author of The Tree. You can purchase the book just in time for Christmas and, and learn more about Denise and her writing at her website, denisemallet.com. And that's Mallet with two L's and two T's. DeniseMallet.com. Here now is our featured artist of the week, Lupe Rios, with La Huida from his new album, Songs of Advent and Christmas.
That was Lupe Rios with La Huida from his new album, Songs of Advent and Christmas. La Huida means, in Spanish, the running away or the fleeing. And singing with Lupe on this track is uh, Stephanie Paz and Xochitl uh, Arango. Um, Lupe Rios was born in Mexico and migrated to the United States as a young boy. He is a graduate of the University of Washington, where he studied political theory, political economics, and he minored in human rights, religion, and music. So he was really busy in university. As we have been listening, he's also a talented singer and musician, and uh, he works as the director of worship for the Mission San Luis Rey Parish in California. And I'm very happy to welcome Lupe Rios to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, welcome. So, you're one of 12 children. What was it like growing up? <laughs> it was incredible. I'm number 11 uh-huh. out of the 12, and there's uh, six boys and six girls. And uh, my family is very traditional. Uh-huh. Uh, we're from rural Mexico, so everything from chores being divided up a certain way to the hierarchical um, you know, ways of speaking with parents and family members, Right. That was all just part of my growing up, and um, it was very hectic. But, uh, you know, my family, we had all these great traditions of, like, praying the rosary every single night. Yeah, My dad always took all the, all the men to work. I had to help with feeding the cows or things like this and helping my mom. Um, uh-huh. uh, my sisters were always, you know, like a little club of, of girls walking on the street, and it was very, it was something that I always took pride and uh, being their brother, because they were very pretty, too, you know? Right, (laughs) yes. uh, Having six sisters. And I remember when we would go to Mass, we would take up two pews, and um, a few of us in the family can sing, so we would harmonize. Some of them don't sing so well, so it would sound like jazz and conflicting chords there. Right. um, (laughs) In in, in that sense, it was was great. We we grew up, um, you know, we didn't have very much. We were very, very poor. Uh, but the the spirit of the family was always so alive, mostly because of my dad's great work ethic and his outlook on life. Right. But um, really, it was my mom's faith that always gave us that insight of how to look at life in such a better way, and to really value the time that we had as family together. Right. One of the one of the memories I have from being a kid, you know, some kids might remember going to the park and playing in the summer. I had to go work in the fields. 
yeah. with my parents. And I used to complain a lot about it, you know, because there were so many of us and we kind of had to do this work that I wasn't very proud of at the time. But now as an adult, I remember my dad being on a ladder, you know, picking cherries and whistling to some church songs. And my mom just on the bottom of the tree, you know, cutting the cherries on the bottom and my brother on the other side of the tree and me on the other side of the tree. And we're joking around and having great family time all day long, something that I was kind of blind as a kid, you know, to, to, to see the beauty of just being together. And I really miss that, especially now that I'm an adult and being alone for like 10 years yeah. away from family. But my family kind of just ran like that. You know, we yeah. went to mass all the time. We worked together. We did almost everything together. It was a beautiful experience right. um, because of the traditional aspect of my family. Yeah. Thankfully, it was all very you know, it, it just stayed together. It functioned. We all had our roles that we had to fulfill. And so it wasn't hectic in in a bad way. Right. It was it's, always very orderly. Now, it's very interesting to hear you say that because, I mean, you, obviously you're talking about once you had already arrived in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so your parents were mig- literally, literally migrant workers working in fields. Yes. That we hear yes, about. That we mm-hmm. hear about, but most of us have never met someone in that situation. So it's interesting to hear you, to hear you put it, put in that perspective that you looking back, that that was actually family time that, that a lot of kids don't get to spend time with their parents because the parents are working, but you actually, because you had to work. um, That's such a blessing that you are able to have that insight. Um, When you were in Mexico, obviously you're from a large family, but did you also have a larger in the community you lived in with grandparents, abuelitos, and cousins, and tios, and everybody, (laughs) right? Uh, I must have, my parents must have come from that generation. You know, on my dad's side, there's 18 of them. So half of the the town was related to my dad's side of the family. He comes from, you know, a half Spanish family, so they kind of trace the whole thing back and they kind of own part of the land there oh, wow. back in the day and so yes. everybody was a cousin and um the, right. you know also just because of maybe the way that the church is in mexico or something but when you have all the godparents and you have um all the uncles and everything it just kind of revolves around that everybody just kind of felt like a family but yes my mom is from a much smaller family of yeah. four okay yeah. um but both families function, function very similarly. They all knew each other's grandparents and great-grandparents, and they all kind of married within, you know, 20 yeah, miles. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. That's, again, something that a lot of us n- never experience, especially in North America. Now, once you arrived in the United States, you were a young boy. You had to do, you know, work. It was a totally change for you, different language. Um, but obviously, and I think this is also an experience that a lot of immigrants have, that your parents really sacrificed a lot for for their children. You obviously had a chance to learn music. I don't know, what was that like? Did you have to, did you learn music kind of by accident? Did you take lessons? Did you have to study piano? You know, it all came from my mother. Yeah. She um, she sings all the, 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 the church songs that sound like you're singing kind of like in a cantina. You know, she cries and they kind of <laughs> go up and down with a very kind of Mexican way of singing. And she tried teaching me those, but... From yeah. a young age, she noticed that I didn't quite have a mariachi voice. <laughs> right. And um, I just learned all the music from my mom because we would canter all the masses in okay. Mexico because we didn't really have choirs. Yes. And from her, yes. I learned 
you know, how to access my voice. She's never had any formal training. She went only to third grade and my dad to first grade. Uh So singing came very naturally to her and one of my brothers. And through her, involved in the church choirs as a volunteer, you know, I remember in Mexico, my sisters were all part of this choir, and this uh, young man used to come and teach all six of them. You know how convenient. But I was always the little kid that sat right next to them and just kind of screamed to the songs. And he always said, oh, no, you know, you can't sing yet because you scream too much and your voice is too light and too high and you sing like a girl. (laughs) Right. And, you know, it's a blessing because now I have, I think, a pretty nice tenor voice. You do. You have a nice um, high voice, high tenor, yeah. (laughs) It can go pretty high up there, but it comes from singing mostly with my sisters and my mom and, uh, you know, the access to all those high notes. It comes from doing like an alto part or a harmony to my mom's singing right, <laughs> that I couldn't right. quite do in, in, in the male voice. And um, there, through the music, is really how my life has evolved. And, and God has used my music really to kind of bring me to this path of life that I'm now living. Yeah. It was all kind of by accident. I've I never know. had a yeah. single formal uh, uh, session, uh-huh. either in piano, guitar, or in voice. Or in voice. But, but I've always hung out with people that are much better right. than I am right. and, and learn as much as I could. And, and as you said, it was not expected because you ended up at the University of Washington, and I'm sure that that was quite the journey to get you there, and mm-hmm. studying everything under the sun, but <laughs> um, politics, economics, human rights, religion, music, I mean, music is there, but what were you thinking? What are you, did, uh, politics? I mean, is that something that you wanted to pursue? I think it comes with my personality and seeing the things that I had to witness growing up, yeah. you know, and uh, seeing that, you know, the way that things work a lot of the times is through politics. Yeah. And politics always played a role in my life. Uh, they guided a lot of who I am indirectly. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it affected me negatively most of the time, <laughs> to yeah. be honest. And that's why I thought, well, you know, somebody is making the rules out there. And the best way to, 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 to cause change, at least in the secular way of thinking, is probably to go into politics. I've, right. I've changed my mind a little bit about that. Right, yeah. No, <laughs> now, but yeah. that was my thinking back in the day, because I grew up seeing so much injustice around me, yeah. you know, and there was no formal way to complain. And yeah. I, on the side, I was just a kid, and I always knew that having access to people that had the power <laughs> yeah. um, was probably one of those ways that I would better my life and better the outcome for the rest of my family that comes after me and yeah. a lot of other people that are in a similar situation, not just immigrants, but anybody that is, you know, ha- that starts out at, at a disadvantage. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, hey, you're still young. You might still end up doing uh, something that makes a difference in people's lives. Um is this your first album, this Christmas album? Yeah, I, I kind of stopped doing music for a while, and now that I've, I've gotten back to music, um, this is the first one that we have out there. I have a lot of stuff that I've written that I've still not recorded, but this was kind of like the debut to kind of see how what kinds of things people like, and also to introduce myself with uh, music that people are more familiar with before Absolutely. I you know, show them. The, the stuff that I have written. Absolutely. Now, I, uh, we're going to end the program by playing uh, your your arrangement, if I can say, of What Child Is This? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, because we hear the traditional melody with the words of the song that people know, but then there's a descant, if I can call it that, or a, uh, in Spanish. Are you? Did you write that? Did you arrange that? How did you come up with that sort of style of putting these things together? Um, <laughs> you probably noticed that throughout the whole album, 
What yes. I, that's actually by Gustav Holt, and okay. it's Lulay My Liking, and it was in English. Um, okay. And uh, I wanted to incorporate some Spanish in it, so I translated it and rearranged it uh, for the three voices that we had it's with beautiful. Stephanie, Sochi, and I. And we kind of intercepted the the song with it. Yeah, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. Um, uh, that's all the time we have, Lupe. But I'm so glad that we finally got to connect. Um, I I get a Christmas a- album every year. That's and this is mine for this year. So this is this is uh, it's a real treat. Thank you very much. Before I let you go, though, and I tell people that where they can go and find your music and learn about you, your website. You're going to have to explain this website so that people don't think that I made a mistake. So lupedifranco.com is your website. Yes. Why? So my name is Lupe Rios. Uh, at the time, since I was 18, we would go by Lupe Di Franco, mostly because I came from a time period in my life when every time somebody called me Lupe, I would get, oh, that's a women's name. Right. And, uh, we, and Lupe Rios, you get a lot of women in Texas. No problem with that. Yes. So I was like, I have to make sure that they're not coming up all the time when you type in my name. Yes. So we went with Lupe Di Franco because I have an Italian background also. Right. Uh, you know, about two two generations ago. And I was always called Franco by some of them. So we went Lupe Di Franco because we thought it sounded good. At this point, I do prefer, however, my real name. Lupe, Lupe Rios. Rios. Yeah, which is a great name. But the website is Lupe Di Franco. So just so that people aren't confused. Thank you so much, Lupe, and uh, continue having a blessed Advent and a Merry Christmas. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. You can learn more about Lupe Rios. You can buy his music, book him for an event, or find out where he'll be performing next at his website, lupedifranco.com. I'm going to put that link on our site so you can find it easily. Here now is Lupe Rios with uh, What Child Is This? Um, and singing with him are those two young girls, Stephanie Paz and Sochil Arango from his new album, Songs of Advent and Christmas. What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping whom angels greet with Sweet, while shepherds watch our We're listening to Lupe Rios with What Child Is This? from his new album, Songs of Advent and Christmas. And that's all for today. Thank you for your financial support. What we do takes money, and so we're so grateful for your support. While you're thinking about that, please consider becoming a Salt and Light monthly donor through our Guardians program. That guarantees us with a predictable income, which is so important for our planning for next year. Thanks for considering that when you're making your charitable contributions, and thank you for being with us for this hour. I'm Deacon Pedro, and this has been the Salt and Light Hour.
Let loving hearts and friends.